Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 um, is a, one of those foundational scriptures. It's uh, one of those things that, uh, that we can go back to again and again and again to reveal to us how this world operates and how the things of God will help us to overcome the, the work of the devil in this world. Beginning in verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man, talking about Adam, sin entered the world. It's talking about the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, I want you to notice it says that sin was the open door that brought together everything that results in spiritual death. Man's nature changed. Man became uh, subject to uh, the law of sin and death. At the point of Adam's sin, disobedience against God and what God had told him to do. And everything about the, the earth changed in regards to man's relationship with God. He died spiritually, which simply means he was separated, his spirit was separated from God. And that condition passed upon all men, to all of his children and all of mankind from that point forward. Now this tells us and answers for us the age-old question, where did sickness come from? There are several different scriptures that we could use to prove it. But here it says that death, which we know includes sickness and disease, came into the earth through Adam's sin. If you remember the story of creation, God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. At the end of everything that he created after the six days, he looked at it and the Bible says he said it was very good. Well, there was nothing that could hurt or harm mankind. Where is sickness? It wasn't created. It wasn't created by God. The Bible says that when God made an end of those six days' work of creation, and he rested on the Sabbath day, the language literally means that he put an end to everything that he created. In other words, God didn't create anything after those first six days. Well, the question has to be asked again, where was sickness and disease? It wasn't present in the earth. It didn't become present. It didn't become an issue until after the fall of man. Well, if God didn't create it, some people will say, yeah, well, maybe God didn't create it, but he used this sickness and disease. If God didn't create it, he couldn't use it. And the reason he couldn't use it is because he would be using that which the enemy, the devil, since we know that sin is the thing that opened the door to sickness and disease, the devil's the author of sin and sickness too. How in the world could God get away with using something that belonged to the devil? They're not co-laborers together. They're not partners in the earth. If God didn't create it, then he can't use it. He uses only that which he has created. And when the Bible says God put an end to everything that he created after those first six days, he stopped. Everything that he needed, everything that mankind needed, had been created. It wasn't present. Sickness and disease was not present. Now skip down with me to verse 17. Again, it's talking about Adam and the contrast or the comparison between Adam and Jesus. It says, for if, literally since, by one man's offense, death reigned by one, talking about Adam and his disobedience, much more, say much more, much more, this is even more sure than the reign that spiritual death had over mankind from the fall. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one 
Jesus Christ. Now notice in verse 12, he's talking about sin being the open door to spiritual death. And then in verse 17, he's talking about the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that comes by Jesus. Notice that he contrasts sin and spiritual death with righteousness. Do you see that? Turn back with me to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. What I want you to see and what I want you to focus on for a few minutes tonight is the connection between sin and sickness. Romans 5.12 says that sin was the open door for sickness. That means if there had never been any sin in the earth, there never would have been any sickness. Well, then the answer for sickness has to be the same as the answer for sin. Doesn't it? If sin is the origin of sickness, then the solution for sickness would have to be the solution for sin. And the other side, the flip side, what is the solution for sin? Everybody knows that's Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Everybody knows that. Isaiah 53, the Messianic chapter, everybody, every scholar will agree that this is talking about the work of the Messiah. Let's just start in verse 1. Who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, for he shall grow up before him, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sorrows is the word pains, literally the word pains. Grief is literally the word sickness. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In other words, sickness and pains was something Jesus knew intimately, not only in his earthly ministry, but also in his work on the cross, the shedding of his blood. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, pains and sickness. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. There's the word sickness again. And carried our sorrows. Again, that's the word pains. Surely, surely. Now think about God inspiring by the Holy Ghost, inspiring Isaiah to write these things. There's only one time the word surely, S-U-R-E-L-Y. Only one time this word is used in the, tw- in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And it's not related to sin, it's related to sickness. Now that's not to say the payment or the price for sickness is greater than the price for sin. It's not, it's the same price. But it's showing us, or should show us, it should trigger in us the understanding that God knew that many in the church, many in his family, would reject the notion that Jesus' blood paid for sickness and disease. The church doesn't argue whether or not Jesus' blood was sufficient to pay the price for sin. But there's a lot of controversy and a lot of disagreement worldwide and has been for ages about whether or not Jesus paid the price for sickness and disease when he died on the cross. Isaiah said that he did. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now, sometimes people will spiritualize that and say, well, he healed our spirits. No, that's not what gets you into the family of God. You can't have a healed, spiritually dead spirit and get in the family of God. Jesus said you must be born again. Jesus said any person that's not born of water, meaning natural birth, and of the spirit, meaning the new birth, 
cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Isaiah says specifically that with Jesus' stripes, we are healed. Now, Isaiah is prophesying several hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene, before he's born into the earth. And so he's looking forward. He says, by Jesus' stripes, that which Jesus will do, that action that Jesus will take, that sacrifice that he makes for us in the future, by his stripes we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. Now, if this is the only place in the Scripture that the Bible tells us about the connection between sin and sickness, the solution, meaning Jesus' death and sacrifice, on the cross along with his resurrection to pay the price for sin and to pay the price for sickness. If this was the only place in the scripture that told us that, then we wouldn't be confident or couldn't have any confidence that this was a Bible doctrine. Because the Bible says of itself, the Holy Ghost inspired writers of the scripture to say of themselves in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So the the Bible principle given by the Holy Ghost is that if you can't find something in the Bible or in God's word, some either Old Testament or New Testament or a combination of the two, at least two or three times, you can't trust it to be a principle. You can't build a foundation on that. Well, let's see if there's any more instances of this. We've seen Isaiah 53. Turn with me over to Mark, I mean, um, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Matthew is writing after the resurrection of Jesus, after the church is born, after people have been made new creatures in him and the church is doing the work of Jesus Matthew 8 looks back to a a point in time where Jesus was ministering here on the earth and it said when the evening was come they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils and he cast out the spirits with his word and he healed all that were sick healed all that were sick he healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now we've talked about this before, but it bears repetition as well. There's a lot of people that'll say, well, see when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, when he healed the sick here on the earth, that fulfilled what Isaiah said that he would do about sickness and disease. And they'll go so far as to say, many will go so far as to say, since it was fulfilled then, it's not a promise for us now. Well, remember Isaiah 53, 5 talks about by his stripes we are healed side by side with Jesus being wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. That means if healing is not available from that point forward, Matthew 8 forward, then neither is Jesus' work on the cross for sin. See, if the point has to be accepted One way or the other. You can't have it both ways. If Jesus fulfilled the work that God said he would do concerning sickness while he was here on the earth, then he had to fulfill the work God said that he would do for sin while he was here on the earth. It can't be one way for half the scripture and another way for the other half of the scripture. It's got to be one way or the other. Well, which way is it? Why did Matthew, why was Matthew inspired of the Holy Ghost to tell us of this instance? There are other instances, one particularly, specifically over in Matthew chapter 12, where Matthew uses exactly the same terminology. He uses exactly the same terminology about that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of Jesus. It talks about the different things that he'll do. Old Testament prophecy, just like Isaiah 53. And part of that prophecy that Matthew quotes is, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Now, folks, 
you know as well as I do that that was not the case when Jesus was here in his earthly ministry. In fact, there were times where Jesus passed up going into Gentile lands and Gentile territories because it was to be given. The gospel, the work of the Messiah was to be given first to the Jews and then afterwards to the Gentiles. So if being fulfilled, if some promise of the Old Testament being fulfilled means that that's it, it's done, it's over, then there's no Gentiles in this world since Jesus' resurrection that's been able to be saved. I'm sure glad that's not true. That'd leave me and you out, wouldn't it? No, it means the beginning of the fulfillment. It means Jesus is showing the will and the plan and the purpose of God in his earthly ministry just as he accomplished the plan and the purpose of God through his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, what's the fulfillment of this, uh, in this case in Matthew chapter 8? The fulfillment is that he healed all that were sick. The fulfillment is that he healed all that were sick. Jesus shows us, and Matthew, inspired by the Holy Ghost, reveals to us that healing is for everybody. That Isaiah 53, 4, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He's showing that healing is for everybody, just like the sacrifice of Jesus' blood on the cross for sin, to be saved, for us to be saved belongs to everybody can't have it both ways if one belongs to everybody then the other has to belong to everybody too thank God it does now turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2 here's the second witness 1 Peter chapter 2 speaking of Jesus verse 24 it says who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. This is an exact quote, New Testament quote of Isaiah 53, 4, or Isaiah 53, 5, I should say. Verse 4 is, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Verse 5 is, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Remember, Isaiah was looking forward several hundred years until Jesus would come to the earth and accomplish God's plan of eternal redemption. Peter, as well as Matthew, looked backwards. Matthew looks backwards some years to Jesus' earthly ministry here and the work that he did, the work of healing that he did here. Peter is looking backwards with full knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus paid the price and he tells us in one verse that the same price that Jesus paid for sins, he paid for sickness and disease. See the connection? The connection is there. Now notice again verse 24. I want to point something else out to you. Well, before I do that, I've got to ask the question. Why would the Holy Ghost inspire Matthew and Peter to look back and identify physical healing or healing for the physical body? Peter's operating as a leader and elder in the church. He was the leader of the church at Jerusalem for a few years, and then uh, God raised James up, the half-brother of Jesus, to become the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. So why would God inspire Matthew and Peter to look back to what Isaiah said, attach it to things that happened either in Jesus' earthly ministry, in Matthew's case, or in the church age, in Peter's case? 
because they knew and it was widely accepted that the same price that Jesus paid for sin, he paid for sickness and disease. They knew that. They didn't have some modern-day theologian to tell them otherwise. They knew what Jesus had done. They experienced these things that they're talking about. They saw it work. They knew that was the case. Now, here's the thing I want you to see in Matthew 24 that I just mentioned before. Notice it says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That's meaning the cross. That we being dead to sins, the price was paid for sin and sickness and disease. That we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. You see that? Should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Notice the connection between the price that Jesus paid, he bearing his own body unto righteousness. Keep that in mind. I'm going to bring that back to you in a little bit. So here we've got three instances Isaiah 53, we've got Matthew chapter 8, and we've got 1 Peter chapter 2. Three instances in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established, the Bible says. Three instances where the Holy Ghost inspired individuals, whether by experience in Matthew. The shedding of Jesus' blood would provide for us. But there are a lot more than these three. For example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell caught for himself. They took him up to the, the roof and they began to move the tilings out of the way and got him by a rope, tied the rope to the In verse 1, again he entered into his house. And the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing him one sick of the palsy. That means he's paralyzed in some form, which was born or carried by four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he. Own. Lay. Notice verse 5. Or perhaps you've heard me. I can't. Thinking. Forgive is not and Jesus knows leaders that uh, Matthew and Luke's gospel tell us were there scribes sitting there in their hearts why think that he spoke who can forgive sins but God only 
perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves. He said unto them, What reason ye these things? Why reason ye? Which is easier? Law, the religious leader. This guy, he can forgive. Only God can do that. Their thinking was such that if Jesus had said, crippled, caught from the roof to be in front of Jesus, if Jesus had just said, arise, take up your bed and walk, they've seen that before. They're familiar with that. That's why there's a crowd of people in the works of healings that he's done, at least many of them. Maybe not all, but many of them. They know he's known for healing the sick. They wouldn't have had any problem with that. They may not have liked it, but it wouldn't be anything new. It wouldn't be anything out of the ordinary. So the answer that Jesus to the question Jesus asked them is, it's a lot easier to say to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up your bed, and walk. It's a lot easier. We may not like that, but at least that's not blasphemy. Do you see the point? For us, we're kind of on the other end of the spectrum. We think it's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven you. If somebody comes and gives their heart to Jesus and we lead them into sinner's prayer, lead them into the family of God, lead them into the new birth, that's common knowledge. That's common activity. We all know that experience. We would have no problem with anybody after leading somebody into the, Lord's, into the sinner's prayer to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we wouldn't have any problem with saying your sins are forgiven, you're clean and pure in the sight of God no matter what your past is. So for us, it's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. Notice what Jesus says. He's put the question out there, which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy? Is it easier to say your sins be forgiven you or to say arise, take up your bed and walk? Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man, not the Son of God, the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up your bed, and go your way into your house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch as they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. So we see that Jesus has proven something to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He's proven that it's the same thing to say your sins are forgiven as to say arise, take up your bed and walk. See the connection between sin and sickness again? How could it be the same thing? Because the same price was paid for both, the blood of Jesus. If Jesus just paid the price for sin and not sickness, then he wouldn't have been able to do the things that he did. So here's the fourth witness that we've got that the same price that paid for sin paid for sickness. And of course, that price was the shedding of Jesus' blood. Now, I'm not going to take the time to go back into the Old Testament, but there are three places in the Old Testament, beginning with the first time that the Passover was instituted. There are three times in the Old Testament where it says that the children of Israel, meaning everybody in Israel that kept the Passover were healed through the keeping of the Passover. Three times where, where God healed a nation of sickness and disease through the keeping of the Passover. Now, I don't know if you want to count that as one or three. 
I would count them as three because there are three separate incidents. Same thing happened three different times. But even if you just count it as one, that's the fifth example we have, isn't it? Well, what about in the Old Testament? There were several times. One is in Numbers chapter 21, I believe. Or maybe it's Numbers 19. Well, it's in the book of Numbers somewhere. Where it tells us about the fiery serpents came into the camp of Israel because of their disobedience. They were murmuring against God. And so these fiery serpents, these poisonous snakes came in among the camp and bit a whole lot of the people and a lot of the people died. So they come running to Moses and they say, Moses, Moses, we messed up. We shouldn't have spoken against God. And now we need his help. And so Moses went before God and God said, make me a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. A brass snake on a pole. And he said, God said, tell the people that everybody that looks upon it shall be healed. And the word that he uses for looks upon it means stare at it intently. It means a strong gaze, not a casual glance. Now, I'm not exactly sure what all that was about or why, but one explanation might be that the snakes are at their feet and they're choosing to look away from the circumstances under what God said was the answer. Now, everybody knows. Jesus even said in John chapter 3, verse 17, 18, somewhere around there, Jesus said that the serpent of brass on the pole was a type of him. He said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so also shall the Son of Man be lifted up. And notice it wasn't a lamb on the pole. It was a serpent of brass. It was that which represented the enemy. It was that which represented sin. And we know from other scriptures, sickness and disease. God said this to Moses. He said in his instructions to make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, he said, make an atonement. For the people. You know what an atonement is? It's a payment for sin. It's something that's offered. Under God. As a payment. For sin. There were a number of atonements. That had to be made or could be made. In the Old Testament according to the law of Moses. And there was one day of atonement. For all of Israel. Was represented by the sacrifice. And their sins were forgiven in total. For a one year period of time. An atonement always has to do with sin. Not sickness. So what did God tell Moses to do? He told him to do that. With the servant of brass on the pole. Do that. Which is an atonement. Which is the payment for sin. We come back to the same place folks. The payment for sickness is the same as the payment for sin. The shedding of Jesus blood for sin is the price that was paid for your physical healing. It was the price that was paid, and it has already been paid. Let's talk talk about that for a minute. If Jesus went to the cross to effect redemption, the erasure of man's sins, which he did, and to set us free from the power of sickness and disease, which he did, then that means as far as God is concerned, judiciously, from a legal standpoint, the price for sin and sickness and disease have all been paid. That's already occurred. There's not anything that you or I or anybody else can do 
to make that more real than it is. The price has been paid. It's already paid. As far as God's concerned, every person on the face of the earth is free from sickness and disease just like they're free from sin through Jesus and the accepting of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Everybody. There's not one thing you can do. There's not one good work you can perform that will make that more real and more true than it is now. Turn with me to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see this. Beginning in verse 1. The situation is that the Gentiles that comprise most of the church that Paul started in the region of Galatia. It's not a town, it's a region. So there are several churches involved and several churches that uh, were intended to read this letter. The Jews have come after Paul has left and saying that you still need to keep the law of Moses. It's not just about faith in Jesus. So Paul writes back to correct the error. Verse 1 of chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. He's simply saying, why are you trying to add the law back? Why do you believe the people that say that you should? This only would I learn of you. Received you the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? How would you get saved, in other words? How would you get filled with the Holy Ghost? Was it doing some of the law of Moses? Well, of course, the answer is no. Simple faith in Jesus. Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? He's saying to the laws of Moses, or does the law of Moses and the keeping of the law of Moses add one thing to your salvation? The answer is no. But they swallowed what the Jews the religious leaders that came from Jerusalem told them and sowed into the church or churches. Have you suffered so many things in vain if it yet be in vain? Here's the question in verse 5. He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit, the one that's ministering and getting people saved and filled with the Holy Ghost, and doing works of miracles, miracle works among you, does he do them by the works of the law? Does God bring salvation because of the works of the law? Does God work miracles through people, through the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? The answer is in verse 6. And the answer, of course, is the hearing of faith. But what kind of faith? Even as, here's how miracles occur. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, he's saying miracles come by the faith that Abraham had. Miracles come by us operating in faith just like Abraham did. Not by the keeping of the law. Not by reading your Bible so many hours a day or praying so many hours a day. Or doing charitable work so many times a week. He's saying those things whereas they might be good. They might add to your experience to know God or to fellowship with him through prayer or something like that. Help other people. Those are all fine things but they don't get you any closer to God. What gets you close to God to become part of his family? And what makes you a recipient of miracle, the miracle power of God is the faith that Abraham used. The same kind of faith, the same elements of faith that Abraham operated in. Now, why is faith necessary? Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that Jesus entered into the heavenly holy of holies one time, not once a year like the Old Testament law demanded of the Israelites but one time he entered in with his own precious blood 
to obtain an eternal redemption for us. Not forgiveness of sins, but the removal. That's what redemption means. It means the removal of sin. That means the price was paid for sin through the precious blood of Jesus. The same blood was shed for sickness and disease to pay the price for that. Judiciously, in other words, from a legal standpoint, in the eternal court of heaven, if there is such a thing, there's certainly an eternal judge in heaven. We know him as our Father. These things have been done. The work of Jesus has accomplished the work, or the blood of Jesus has accomplished the work that God intended for it to do. So why is faith necessary? Why does God require faith? We know faith's really important. It said, James tells us, James chapter 1 tells us without faith you can't receive anything from God. So faith is important in the, uh, to the extent that we want to receive and take hold of everything that Jesus has done for us. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says without faith it's impossible to please God. But why? Why is faith necessary? Did you notice here in Galatians chapter 3 and as well as other times, several other times in the Old Testament and in the New where it tells us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness? Why does the Bible tell us that so many times? There are four specific places in the scripture where it tells us that. Why is that such an issue? Why is that so important? Because folks, believing that God will do what he said he will do, independent of or in spite of what we see, what we feel, or what we think, is righteousness in action. See, a lot of people think, have the idea, I guess, that righteousness is doing good things. Well, that goes back to the works of the law then, doesn't it? A lot of people think that righteousness in action means that we're doing good things for other people. And that's not what God considers righteousness to be. And that's why the Bible tells us this about Abraham over and over again. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. So then what is righteousness? Righteousness is operating in faith. That's what righteousness is. Now operating in faith and developing the love of God that's shed abroad in our heart may lead us to do good works. It may lead us to be involved in charitable efforts. It'll certainly lead us to walking in love toward our fellow man. Those are good things, but those are not the things that please God. The things that please God is very simply believing what he says and acting or living your life accordingly. That's the only thing that pleases God. That's the only thing that receives from God. Turn back with him to Romans 4 and let's see the elements of the kind of faith that Abraham showed. Romans chapter 4, we'll start reading in verse 17. As it is written, this is talking about what God had already spoken to Abraham. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed. Even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not 
at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, what he, God, had promised, God, he, was able also to perform. Here it is again. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, what's the difference in Abraham operating by faith and you and me operating by faith? Time. Because Jesus had not come, Abraham's example of faith was counted to him for righteousness. But he couldn't be made righteous until the blood of Jesus was shed. For us, it's not counted as righteousness for us. It's our nature. It's our nature. And there are four characteristics that are identified here in Romans chapter 4. Four characteristics that make the, the, the same faith, the kind of faith that Abraham showed that Paul was talking about in Galatians chapter 3. There are four elements, four characteristics of Abraham's faith that will produce and or receive miracles in any area that you have need of. Four things. Come back next Sunday night and I'll tell you what those are. <laughs> you want to know? They're right here. Let's back up again to verse 17. As it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations before him who he believed. I want you to notice that it says before him, talking about Abraham, stood before God and believed. Even God. You see the word even there? Even is, is in italics, which means the translators added it. This verse of scripture literally from the original Greek means like unto God. Abraham believed God and one of the characteristics that proved that was he began to operate like God. The Bible says, and Paul wrote it to the, the Galatians, be imitators of God. See, some people get all bent out of shape when you start operating by faith and they'll think that you're trying to be God or you're trying to be somebody that you're not or whatever. But in fact, it's, it's a Bible principle, this Bible instruction for us to be imitators of our father. There's no question about the fact that the children of the devil sure act like their father. And I guess it's just a matter of people getting under conviction when they see you operating differently than they do. But we're commanded to be imitators of God. We're commanded to be imitators of God. Well, in what way did Abraham imitate God? He's still spiritually dead. There's nothing that was, was done or could have been done in his lifetime to change the fact that he was spiritually dead. But he made a choice. He made a choice to believe what God told him. He made a choice to be like God, to be an imitator of God. How is God to be imitated? Well, one thing is, he calls things that be not as though they were. The example that's given is right here in the first phrase in verse 17. As it is written, God has said to Abraham, had called him this before Abraham had children. I have made thee a father of many nations. So if Abraham is going to be an imitator of God or operating like God in this respect, Abraham's going to have to start saying the things that God said. God said, I've already made you the father of nations before you ever had a child. I've already made you the father of nations. Now, here's the dilemma, and we can well understand. How was Abraham supposed to say that he had been made the father of nations when he didn't have children? How is it that he can say 
without fear of contradiction or fear of being accused of lying, how could he say, God has made me the father of nations? There's only one answer, and that is because God said so. When we say what God's word says about us, in spite of circumstances that contradict what we're saying, it simply means, it most importantly means, that we believe God's word is true even above what we can see and feel. And that's righteousness. For us, that's righteousness in action. That is the sum total, it is the pinnacle of righteousness. It's the sum total and the pinnacle of us living under righteousness, like 1 Peter 2.24 says. Jesus bearing his body, our sins on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. That's what living under righteousness is, by whose stripes we are healed. Or Peter said, by whose stripes we were healed. So the first thing, the first characteristic of Abraham's faith is that he was an imitator of God in this sense. He called things that be not as though they were. Well, what about the other part that it talks about God? What about being like God when it says God quickens the dead? How could Abraham be an imitator of that? Well, let me ask you this. How does God quicken dead things? The word quicken means makes alive. How does God bring dead things back to life? Isn't it through his words? Doesn't God speak life into death and make the change? I believe, you take this with a grain of salt, check it out any way you want to. I believe Abraham began to talk to his body. That would certainly be like God. When he's calling things that be not as though they were, what things is he calling as if they were already done? Well, one of those things I'm sure is the promise of the son that God had promised him. But another thing that would make sense is for Abraham to begin to speak to his body. It says that he didn't consider his body now dead or Sarah's womb to be dead. How did he not consider that? It's very possible, folks. And again, you judge it for yourself. But it's very possible that he spoke life to his own body. We do that sometimes, don't we? The Bible never commands us to do it. There's no specific instruction in the scripture that says speak life to your body, but it works. We've learned through our relationship and the development of our relationship with God as we walked with him in his word and walked with him in fellowship through prayer. We've learned that speaking to our bodies works. It brings life into bodies. It brings life into areas of our own life or experience where death may be ruling and reigning. But we speak life to our bodies. I think Abraham did too. Otherwise, why is it attached to the same place where it says Abraham called things that be not as though they were? Verse 18, we'll read it again. Who against hope, without natural hope in other words, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. See, I read that as his confirmation that he's speaking life to his body and Sarah's. 
He had no natural hope. The only thing that he had was a promise from God. Well, what do we do with the promises of God? Everything about the Bible instructs us to speak what we desire, the end result that we want to receive, and not according to the circumstances. That's what faith is. Abraham had no reason to hope. There was no natural reason to hope in his body being able to function reproductively or Sarah's womb to be either. The only thing he had to rely on is what God had said. Well, what did God say? God said, so shall thy seed be. He's remembering back to when God showed him the stars in the sky some 10 or 12 years before. He's remembering to where God said, count the stars. And he said, I can't. He said, so shall your seed be. He's beginning to operate in some form. And we know the importance of confession. That's why I believe that he began to say, this is how my children are going to be. I've got a promise from God that this is the way that it is. Verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Here's the second element. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. He staggered not through the promise of God through unbelief. The um, American Standard Version, I think, says it this way. It says, but looking unto God, he staggered not. Looking unto God, he staggered not. See, if you put these two verses together, it tells us what Abraham did not consider to be the final word on the subject, which was the condition of his body and the condition of Sarah's. And it shows us what he did consider to be the final word on the subject, which was what God said about his children. So shall thy seed be. He did that by choice. And he did that once and for all. He staggered not. He made his declaration. This thing can go one of two ways. And very often we need to look at our own lives and our own situations in the same respect. Abraham looks at this and says this can go one of two ways. We can either not have the child that God promised or we can have the child of promise. Which way is it going to be? Abraham has developed his relationship with God to such a degree. He's seen God work in his life to such a degree that he chooses, not without an opportunity to doubt, but he chooses to say what God told me is the final word on the subject. And he never turned back from that decision. He staggered not. Why did he not stagger? Why was he not wavering? James says the man that wavers can't receive anything from God. Abraham didn't have a chance to read James 1. So why did he do what he did? Because that's the way his covenant partner operated. God had proven himself faithful up to that point in every respect of their relationship, every respect of the covenant. So Abraham said, I will choose to believe what God said, and I'll keep my eyes on that. Looking under the promise is the same as the children of Israel being commanded to look upon the serpent of brass. Don't casually glance at it. Fix your attention on it and don't waver. So that's the second element of Abraham's faith. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Notice strong in faith is identified or defined. First of all, giving glory to God. The third element of Abraham's faith that will produce miracles that will cause you and I 
to receive the miracle working of God, miracle works of God. The third element is that he rejoiced before he had the answer. He rejoiced before he had the answer. He rejoiced before he had the answer. Folks, if we're not willing to praise God for the answer before we see it, we don't have a chance to be considered strong in faith. There's an Old Testament scripture in Proverbs. I don't even know where it is. Easy enough for you to find if you want to. But I had the Lord quote a scripture to me one time that I didn't know where it was. I had to look it up. I didn't remember ever having read it. But I was in a particularly hard place and I started complaining. I started whining to God, not to anybody else, but just to him. Lord, this isn't fair. This is not right. And I was right. It wasn't fair and it wasn't right. It shouldn't have been the way things were going. But it was what it was. And the Lord spoke this scripture to me. And here it is. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That is not what I wanted to hear at the time. But God was showing me the way out. Hurt my feelings. I felt like he had dealt me a low bro. But he was showing me the way out. Folks, the way out is to stand strong in faith. No matter what's in front of you. No matter what you feel, no matter what you see. The way out is to be strong in faith. That's what Abraham did. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. So the third element is to rejoice before you see the answer. Here's the fourth element. And being fully persuaded. Being fully persuaded that God was able to do what he promised. That's the other part of being strong in faith. And being fully persuaded... That what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Being fully persuaded is simply this. We don't start off fully persuaded in much of anything. But the more we speak God's word, the more we look at God's word, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how we feel about it, the more we look at God's word, keep our eyes on that, the more we speak God's word, and nothing to the contrary, the more we rejoice in the promises that God has made unto us as if we had already received them, then you come to the place, it doesn't happen overnight, but you come to the place where those promises that you're looking at, where those things that you're saying, the word of God that you're speaking into your circumstance, and the rejoicing about the answer becomes more real to you than the circumstances. It becomes more real, more true, more established, more set than anything that you're feeling. Any thoughts of doubt that the enemy brings to you that it's not going to work or it can't work or you're not strong enough to make it work or whatever, he says. The truth of God's word becomes more real to you than the circumstances. That's what it says caused Abraham to be counted as righteous. God wants nothing more than you and I to believe what he says and to live accordingly. He wants nothing more than for us to choose. And because of the fallen nature of man, because of the sin nature that, that uh, came upon all of mankind through Adam's sin, because of that sin nature, 
We work backwards to where, from where Abraham, uh, I'm sorry, we work backwards from where Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Adam was in the Garden of Eden and Satan had no access to his intelligence, his mind in, what, in any way whatsoever. Adam's mind and his body were ruled by his spirit, the life of God on the inside of him. But when, that, when he fell and all of mankind was plunged into spiritual darkness, now our mind, all of a sudden, and, and this is true for all of mankind, now our mind was controlled by our circumstances and our physical surroundings. Gone are the days when Adam's mind was controlled by his spirit. From that point on, including for us, from that point on, it became an uphill battle to try to get our minds back under control, the control of our spirits. It became an uphill battle for our tongues to be controlled by our spirits, even after we were born again. James talks about that the tongue is a, is a poison, and it'll set anything on fire. It's set on course of hell. That's not the way God made the tongue to be. But that's the way the tongue became because of the fall of man. So we now have a responsibility. We're directed specifically to bring our bodies and our tongues and our minds, our thought life, back under the control of our spirits. In order to do that, we're going to have to do the same thing that Abraham did. We're going to have to look under the promise of God. We're going to have to be like God in the fact that he speaks life into death situations we have to be like God in the sense that we call things that be not as though they were we have to make a one-time decision that the word of God is true in every area of our life so we begin to speak health no matter what sickness attacks our body we begin to speak abundance no matter what lack or physical tragedy comes to us we make a one-time decision that we're going to put God's word first and then we give ourselves to the keeping of that promise. One way Abraham did that was giving glory to God. And the Bible tells us that he came to the place where he was fully persuaded. Fully persuaded. He's not asking any more questions. He's not wondering how this is going to happen. He's not asking if there's something else that he's missed that he should do instead. He's at the place where he's fully persuaded. He's done everything he's supposed to do. The work is left up unto God to perform. And he knows he can trust him to do it. That's the kind of faith that will receive miracles. That's the kind of faith that takes hold of the miracle working of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Every promise that you've ever made unto us is true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. We choose to operate in the faith of Abraham. We choose to operate as he did. Calling things that be not as though they were. Because you say so. Speaking life unto our bodies and into our situations and circumstances. We choose to keep our eyes fixed on your promises. To look only at your promises. We choose, Father, to give you glory, to rejoice in the answer even before we see it. And we thank you that this action, this lifestyle of faith, this walking by faith, brings us to a fully persuaded position 
where the word is more true than what we feel. The word is more true than what we see. Where the word is more true than anything else in the universe. Because it's your word. Thank you, Father, for honoring that faith. Speedily. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, thank you for being with us. We love you. Have a great week.